0: And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. If you've ever shared the gospel with unbelievers, you've undoubtedly encountered some objections, right? They're going to throw things out at you and, and try to kind of talk their way out of or whatever, um, there's a difference between smoke screen questions and real questions. If somebody is really looking for the Lord and something is blocking their path, you want to do everything you can to get whatever that block is out of their way. There's others that are just going to muddy the water and it's, it's easy to do. It's easy to do, uh, and they're just trying to confuse you, to confuse the whole topic that you're talking about. Um, we call that a smoke screen. It's no use pursuing that. All they're doing is playing with you, all right? Uh, but some of the things that you might encounter is something like this. Why does a good and loving God allow so much suffering in the world? Uh, why is Jesus the only way to God? Will God send good, sincere people from other religions to hell? What about all the people who have lived and died without ever hearing about Jesus? Will they be punished eternally in hell even though they never had a chance to believe? And is that fair if that is so? Well, our text shows the Apostle Paul responding to questions, to objections that he anticipated in response to what he had just written in chapter 2. These were probably questions that he had often encountered when he preached uh, the gospel in a Jewish setting. After he would preach, people would come and say, well, what about this? What about this? So most likely, these verses are very hard to 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 follow a a logical this, you know, Paul is laying this out. It, it's very difficult. As a matter of fact, a lot of commentators say these are the most difficult verses in Romans to interpret. Uh, I believe that he is simply throwing out common objections that he has gotten while after you know after preaching the gospel. Um, what I want to do is try to explain the text, because if you don't understand the text, then we won't be able to apply it. So we'll try to understand what Paul's saying here. Then at the end, I'm going, to ask, I'm going to offer some just practical applications based on what we've seen. Now, I want to begin with just kind of an overview here. The first question Paul anticipates in response to his comments that being a Jew or being uh, truly circumcised physically are not what matters. That's what he said in 28 and 29 last week. And he addresses that in verse 1 here. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the benefit of circumcision? Now, these are the same questions stated two ways, and they do correspond to Paul's assertions in verses 28 and 29, the last of chapter 2 that we looked at last week. Now, to paraphrase, Paul's Jewish readers would have objected, Paul, if being a, a physical descendant of Abraham and receiving the sign of circumcision, if they are of no value, then you are throwing out the entire Old Testament. What good are God's promises to Abraham? What good was God's choice of the nation of Israel? And Paul replies in verse 2, great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, the second objection comes there in verse 3. What then, if someone did not believe, if some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? In other words, this Jewish unbelief, does that negate God's promises? Paul responds with horror to the thought that God might be unfaithful. There in verse 4, he says, by no means. All right, this this is the most, this is the sharpest denial that we have in Scripture, He says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. And then he cites David from Psalm 51.4 to show that God is faithful, whether He keeps His promises or whether He judges guilty sinners. He is glorified in both of those instances. And this leads to a third objection there in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God... What shall we say that God is unrighteous to inflict us with wrath? And then kind of in parentheses I speak in a human way. If our sin glorifies God's righteousness in judgment, then isn't God's uh, un, yeah then isn't God unrighteous to punish us for it? Paul apologizes for even stating an ungodly thought like that, and he adds, by no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But the objector, we call this a silent objector. Paul does this in other places as well in his writings where he knows that what he's talking about is going to raise some questions, so he asks those questions up front and answers them. He says, I know this is what you're thinking, and that's, that's what he's doing here. We've got another, uh, he the restates the objection in verse 5 and verse 7. He says, But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, uh, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? The absurd idea is this, if my sin brings glory to God when he judges me, then he should thank me. He shouldn't judge me. Paul takes it, Further, by alluding to some slanderous charges that had been leveled against his teaching there in verse 8, let us do evil that good may come. He addresses this in chapter 6 as well. And he replies, replies tersely, their condemnation is just. The words are getting what they deserve. Now, obviously, we need God's help with this passage this morning. So let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we thank you for your abundant love for us. We thank you for the way that you have condescended and given us a revelation of yourself. And Father, that's what we have here from Paul. Give us eyes to see, speak through your Holy Spirit to our hearts, Father, to understand this message and then to apply it to our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I want to work through this dialogue in a little bit more detail. What I'm going to do is paraphrase the critics' challenge and then follow it with Paul's response. Number one, the critics are saying, doesn't your argument about being a Jew inwardly imply that there's no real advantage to being a Jew? And Paul responds by saying, no, because God entrusted the Jews with His word. So the Jewish critic is saying, your view, Paul, takes away all the advantages of the Old Testament uh, that were promised to uh, the Jews. In effect, you just wiped out the entire Old Testament. That's because of what Paul said in verses 28 and 29. And because of that, you'd kind of expect Paul to say, well, you're right. Being a Jew and being circumcised are real, no advantage. But he kind of surprises us here. And he says, it's actually great in every respect. He then says, to begin with. Some translations say, first of all. That kind of leads you to believe there's going to be a list. But guess what? There's no list. That doesn't come until chapter 9. Here, Paul only lists one great advantage of being a Jew. He says, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. This refers to the Old Testament as a whole with special reference to God's promises of salvation. God had not revealed Himself in this specific way to any other nation on earth. God promised through the Jewish prophets as recorded in our Old Testament to send the Savior of the world through them. Through the symbolic significance of the temple and the laws and the sacrifices, the Jews uniquely had God's revelation about the coming Messiah, the coming Savior. All the other nations were left in spiritual darkness. God entrusted the Jews with His very word. Now, this was a great privilege, but you know what else it was? A great responsibility. To have the light of God's Word and yet to reject it, that means that you are more accountable than the person who had no light except the the light of general revelation of creation. We all have that. During 2,000 years of human history from Abraham to the time of Jesus, the pagan nations worshipped their false gods, uh, offering sacrifices to appease their anger. They lived in fear and confusion. They had no hope of salvation. But the Jews, they knew how to approach the living and true God, maker of heaven and earth. They had His promises to send the Savior. The godly in Israel were looking for the fulfillment of that promise. What an unspeakable privilege that is. But the fact that many in Israel did not believe in God's promises of salvation, that leads to the second objection here, They say, but doesn't the unbelief of many Jews nullify God's promises? And and Paul responds, no. Jewish unbelief does not nullify God's faithfulness to them or His right to judge them. He says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? by no means he says let god be true though every one were a liar just as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged paul answers this more thoroughly in romans chapter 9 through 11 that's that's where he shows that the widespread jewish unbelief did not thwart god's sovereign election of what they call a remnant a few Now there still is a future widespread conversion of the Jews when all Israel will be saved. That's what Romans eleven twenty six tells us. But here he first gives a little bit of grace to his critics by asking, "What if some did not believe?" That's that's what he, the objection. Actually, most of the Jews did not believe. Only a few were faithful. But Paul probably is being gracious, so he's not going to needlessly offend his Jewish critics. But then he takes it further by arguing that even if every person in the world were unfaithful, think about it, all of us, the whole world were unfaithful and accused God of being unfaithful in His promises, it would only mean that we are all liars and that God is true. God's faithfulness to His word—that that's a necessary attribute of His being. If He were not faithful, then He wouldn't be God; He'd be a liar. And, and it's a given that God cannot lie. If there seems to be a discrepancy between His promise and what we perceive, the fault always lies with us, not with God. In any contention, He is right even if the whole world lines up against Him. And we see that more today as much as, you know, most any time in history, where the vast majority of people are aligned against God. Now, Paul backs up his assertion here by quoting Psalm 51, verse 4. He says that you may be, there he says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you judge Psalm 51 is David's psalm of repentance. It's his plea for mercy after his sin with Bathsheba and the the murder of Uriah Uriah the Hittite. David agrees that God is justified in every word that the prophet Nathan spoke about the consequences of his sin. David had no excuses. He had no grounds for complaint. He deserved death, and he knew that. You remember Nathan gave him quite quite a good speech and saying, "It's you. You're the man." David realized this prophecy against him, and it's several words uh, in English. In Hebrew, it's just two words, and it's, "I have sinned before God. I have sinned against God." Um, so, David is saying, "God, you are completely right in your judgments. I am completely wrong. I am guilty before you." Paul uses this quote to show that God is just as faithful when He judges His people for their sins as when He saves them according to His promise. If sinners repent, God mercifully forgives the guilty, but He never treats them unjustly even if He judges them. Same as for us. We've all sinned many times. We all deserve God's judgment. If He judges the guilty... He does not cease to be faithful to His promises to save those who repent and trust in Him. Now, at this point, those who object to Paul's reasoning, they kind of move into the realm of the ridiculous. They display their amazing ingenuity in justifying their own sin. But Paul, no doubt, had heard this objection when he preached in the synagogues before. Number three... Here's kind of the question, but if our sin demonstrates God's righteousness, how can He judge us for it? And Paul replies, "But that argument would mean that God can't judge even the Gentiles." And Paul writes, "But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of, righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And then that little parenthetical statement, I speak in a human way. It's just so ridiculous. That's why I'm letting you know I'm talking like a human here. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? So they're saying, Paul, if you're saying that God's righteousness shines through when He judges us, then He'd be wrong to judge us because he, he, we would actually be instruments of His glory. How can God judge us for something that He turns for His own advantage? Now, it's, it's really an outrageous argument, but when people start to rationalize their sin, reason goes out the window and is replaced by just an amazing ingenuity. Paul answers this objection first by apologizing for even stating it. I am speaking as a human here. (laughs) Then he gives a strong negative, by no means. Then he asks the question that he knows that his Jewish opponents would never concede. He says, for then, how could God judge the world? If 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 their objection was true, then how could God judge the world? The Jews... Man, they wanted God to judge the Gentiles for their many gross sins, but somehow they thought that the Jews would get a free pass. But Paul is saying that that line of reasoning, that would prohibit God's judgment on anyone. If the sins of the Jews bring God glory, and thus they should be exempt from His judgment, then the sins of the Gentile would also merit exemption. So their argument actually, it goes too far. It proves too much. But Paul's critics, they're not ready to concede defeat and they, they uh, rephrase the objection of verse five again in verse seven. And this is point four. But you're teaching, Paul. It implies that if my sinning abounds to God's glory, not only should I not be judged, also I ought to sin all the more. That way his glory could shine more. And Paul's response is, That's ridiculous. You've just hung yourself. Paul shifts here to the first person, all right? Some think that Paul is using himself to refute the critic by saying, take me for example. If you think that what I'm teaching here is false, but my lie results in greater glory for God, then how could God judge me? In other words, the argument that you're using to prove that God should not judge you, that applies to me as well. If God shouldn't, shouldn't judge you for your sin, neither should He judge me for lying. Or Paul may be using the first person to kind of individualize his critic's argument by bringing it home to the individual's conscience. And if that's the case, then verse 7, seven should probably be in quotes. And it's as the critic asks, but if through my lie the truth of God abounded to His glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? Now, Paul in verse 8, he adds a a logical extension of that retort. And he says, and why not say, in other words, take it another step. Why not just go ahead and say, as we are slanderously reported and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Somebody had been accusing Paul and Paul's teaching of being that. Um, basically antinomianism, forget the law, do whatever you want, God's going to forgive you, He's going to be glorified all the more. The more you sin, the more God is going to be glorified. Well, Paul's response to that is their condemnation is just. So Paul's critics accused him of teaching that if our sin magnifies God's grace, that's sin a lot, so that God will be more glorified. It's kind of the end justifies the means, right? But Paul has shown that his critics have just hung themselves. If, if they accuse Paul uh, 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 that, that, uh, of arguing that we should sin more to bring glory to God, they're actually accusing themselves because that's where their excuses, there in verse 5 and verse 7, that's where they actually lead. So Paul refutes them with that terse. Their condemnation is just. They're going to get what they deserve. Now, their absurd conclusions reveal that they are under God's righteous judgment. Now, although Paul's argument in these verses is not easy to follow, like I said, I think he's just laying out some objections that he has heard. Uh, the bottom line is pretty clear. If you contend with God, guess what? He's going to win. <laughs> you are going to be condemned. You can raise all the objections you want against God, but in the end, he wins and you will lose. You will end up under his just condemnation. All right, so hopefully you kind of understand what's going on here a little bit. Let, let's let's just apply something that some things that we've seen. Number one, spiritual privileges, like being a Jew or being circumcised physically, spiritual privileges do not give you any advantage with God if you do not respond in faith and obedience. Rather, they increase your, incau- your accountability uh, to God. Uh, Israel is a nation. They were given amazing spiritual privileges. They were the only nation on earth entrusted with the very God- words of God. But rather than responding in faith in a, a life of thankful obedience to God, most of the Jews rebelled against Him and worshipped the idols of the pagan nations around them. Let's let's think about us. If you grew up in a Christian home, you have an amazing spiritual privilege. Hopefully your parents taught you about God and the way of salvation that He provides in Jesus Christ. They took you to church where you could hear God's Word explained and applied. But have you responded with faith in Christ as your Savior? Have you repented of your sins? Do you seek to walk in obedience to God's Word? If not, on Judgment Day, growing up in a Christian home will prove not to have been a blessing, but a curse. Because it actually increases your accountability to God. Number two, the Bible is a great treasure that God has entrusted to us. Therefore, we should study it and seek to obey it as the only wise way to live. You guys familiar with Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous preacher um, over in England in the uh, middle of the 20th century? Considered one of probably the best preacher of the 20th century. He says, so the point therefore at which you and I start is this, we say, he's talking about the Bible, this is no ordinary book, this is the Word of God. Do we show that we realize that and what a privilege it is by reading it, studying it, delving into it, and spending our time praying over it? He continues by saying that we shouldn't just read over a few verses as as a matter of custom in the morning before we rush off to more important things. Rather, we should say, here, God is speaking to me. He says that if we really believe that the Bible is God's word directed to us, we wouldn't spend more time each day reading the newspaper. That was a thing back then. Maybe it's social media today, whatever. And he does say, or other things than we do seeking to understand and apply the oracles of God. John Wesley, the great 18th century evangelist, he wrote this about the Bible. He says, I am a creature of a day, passing through life as an arrow through the air. I am a spirit come from God and returning to God, just hovering, hovering over the great gulf till a few moments hence, I am no more seen. I drop into an unchangeable eternity. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven how to land safe on that happy shore. God Himself has condescended to teach me the way. For this end, He came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. End quote. If God has in fact entrusted us with His very word then surely it must be the foundation of our life. It must be the light for our path in this dark world. We talked a lot lot about this last week. Don't neglect your Bible. If you're neglecting your Bible, it simply means you don't understand the treasure that you have in your hands. Well, number three uh, kind of application here, if you're fighting against God, you're fighting a losing battle. The only way to win is to give up, to submit to Him. There are many things in God's Word that are difficult to understand, such as the doctrine of God's sovereign election. Why does God allow little children to suffer suffer terrible things? Why does He allow many to live and to die with no gospel witness? Uh, Why doesn't God tear down the satanic strongholds of false religions that deceive millions? Well, there are things to... That are difficult to rejoice in, such as the doctrine of eternal punishment. Now, I'm saying that we should. That I'm not saying that we shouldn't wrestle with these hard issues and try to understand them and think more carefully about them. But there are two ways to approach these difficult matters. You can come as a submissive child, asking the Father to give you more light, so that you will know Him and His ways more accurately. That way you can obey Him more fully. Or you can come as a critic, demanding that God give you answers as if He owes it to you. If you try to prove that you're right and God is wrong, you're barking up the wrong tree. Even though you may not understand God or His ways, you have no right to contend against Him or accuse Him of wrong. The book of Job, it shows that even the most righteous man on the face of the earth has no grounds to contend with God and demand answers, even if he feels that he is suffering unjustly. You know what Job's final position was? <laughs> he <laughs> slapped his hand over his mouth and he repented in sackcloth and ashes. That needs to be our attitude as well. We just need to close our mouth Admit our own insignificance in God's presence and repent. If you fight against God, you lose. If you submit to Him, you win. So wrestle with your questions in a spirit of submission, not defiance. Lastly, number four, be careful not to use your questions as an excuse for not repenting. Uh, from your sin and trusting in Christ. I mean, it is easier to rationalize sin than it is to repent of it. It's easy to latch on to some objection about God or the Bible, to use that objection to dodge the clear truth of the Bible about Jesus and then to justify your own sin. And you know, people do this every day. And I'm willing to bet that most of us do it to some degree. Do you understand that the Lord Jesus is the centerpiece of God's Word? If He is true, then every objection against Him is a lie. God will prevail when He judges all sin. Make sure that you have repented of your sin and taken refuge in the Lamb who was slain for sinners. Jesus Christ and Him crucified is God's final answer what was that show, final answer? Who wants to be a millionaire? Wasn't that it? Yeah. yeah. Is that your final answer? Yeah, the final answer to every objection is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let's pray. Father, thank You again just for the truth of Your Word. It ultimately always leads back to Jesus. Uh, Father, we understand that uh, as, as God, you cannot lie, you do not lie, you will not lie. Uh, Father, these things are there, are written in Scripture for our benefit. Help us to see that this morning. If there's anybody here that does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Father, would you do a work in their heart right now to take away uh, the hardness of their heart, the, the scales from their eyes, the wax from their ears. Father, help them to see, help them to understand just who Jesus is and what He has done on their behalf. Father, do that, and we'll give you praise and glory for it. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. If you don't know Jesus this morning, if you're not walking with Him, if you're not obedient to the Word, maybe you've never, 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 never been saved. That might be a scary word to you. It's not that big of a deal. It's simply you realizing you can't save yourself. We, we all try to do that, particularly in the West. Uh, we're taught from a young age to be independent. Man, we make a big deal when you get out of diapers, right? Oh, such a big boy, such a big girl, right? When the training wheels come off, Independence is ground into us from the ground up. Did you know that Christianity is not about independence? That is anti-Christian. Christianity is about interdependence. We recognize that we have nothing to bring to God. And so we kind of step to the side. and, And like that publican in Luke 18, we say, Father, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said he went home that day justified right with God. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? God, have mercy on me. That's what he wants to hear. He'll make you his child today. But you got to recognize you're a sinner. When you recognize that, that's a big step. That's what we call the bad news. But then the good news really does become good news. Yeah, you realize you can't do anything but you can trust Christ who did everything. He died on the cross. Trust in Him today. If you're a believer, I hope that this gives you an idea of what we looked at today of just how we, we might in some way be justifying our own sin. That's what these objections, they were trying to justify their sin to Paul. Are you trying to justify any of your sin in your own heart before God? with some excuse when God says there is no excuse (laughs) repent again repent again as believers we repent every day because we sin every day I hope that you're doing that I hope you're seeking God in his word and that you're following it you're living by it that's our charge today as believers Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.